our series entitled Empty, uh, How the Resurrection Changes Everything. And for the last several weeks, we've been going through and looking at the uh, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ and how different individuals, after their encounter with Christ, have been changed. Now, as, we're, as you're turning there, and if you're not familiar with your Bible, it's in the New Testament. It's not 1 John, 2 John, or 3 John. It doesn't have a number in front of it. It's just plain John. So hopefully you could turn there. It is in the, the uh, New Testament, so it means it's in the latter half of your Bible. And uh, as we're getting there, I'd like to ask you a question. How many of you have ever had an epic failure in your life? Epic failure. I mean, we've all had moments of just unbelievable and undeniable failure. Sometimes they're humorous, sometimes they're not. But I'd like us to look at some, some pictures up here of some epic failures. All right, here's the first one. Think about it. Okay, I don't know if you've ever done this. I have actually done this. I did this uh, when I was moving from Massachusetts to Chicago. I packed it up, I locked it, and then I realized that I couldn't get the key in. All right, now some of you are just getting it. Welcome. Welcome to the service. Welcome to the sermon. I'm Travis. I'm your host. Uh, Next, here's another epic failure. It's Doritos mouthwash. (laughs) That's pretty gross. All right. Here's here's one that I hope men you never ever do. Here's another epic failure. White Castle. Reserve your Valentine table. Okay, that's an epic epic failure. And if you've ever done this, I'd like to talk to you after the service. Uh, But you know, there are other epic failures. Some of these are quite funny, and some are not quite so funny. Let me show you another epic failure. This is an epic failure, right? We are here. I I had to laugh because this, uh, as you are familiar, if you've not at all read the news or you've been joined with some Amish or maybe in a a monastery for the past few weeks, this has been all over the news, everywhere. Harold Camping of Family Radio has been predicting for several years that yesterday would be the end of the world that the true church, which she believed were his followers, and that followed his teaching about the Bible, would be caught up in the rapture. It would start at 6 p.m. in different time zones throughout the world. And of course it didn't happen. I actually laughed yesterday morning when I woke up. I received a text message from Tim Bedall, teaching pastor at the other campus, and he said, wow, I can't believe it. My texting works from heaven. How's it down there? <laughs> I said, thanks, Tim. Beautiful. Now, many of us, though, I mean, I can't imagine what camping is feeling right now, or his followers. Matter of fact, there is a church in California nearby where Family Radio is headquartered that took it upon themselves to minister to his followers that were just crushed by this. And they stood outside Family Radio with, with said, hey, we love you, please come talk to us, we're here for you. Because the devastation and the pain that they feel is unbelievable. Matter of fact, the worry is, as what happens if many different doomsday sects or cults, is that the individuals, after it doesn't happen, they either uh, reply, they just respond angrily in uh, lashing out, sometimes resulting in murder or their own suicide. So there's a lot of concern here. But I think about what's, what's the future of this individual. And he's, uh, Harold Camping, as he's made these different assertions, bold predictions 
that he has made, that he has asserted on the radio for the whole world to see. People would call in, and they'd ask him the question, what are you going to do on May 22nd? He goes, there's not going to be a May 22nd. I'm not going to be here. Because see, many people, in their innocence and being deceived, gave away their life savings and sent it to this man's ministry. And they, they sold it to buy RVs. They had budgeted, some had budgeted down to the very last day of how much money that they would have and just deceived. And I, I was looking at the different social media networks and I saw all of these different people that I've had encounters with over the years, some believers, some unbelievers, some uh, just very uneducated believers. And there was genuine, by some of them, fear at what on May 20th and what May 21st held. And I, I think, though, of camping and those who followed him, and they made these really bold assertions in the, in the midst and in the face of great hostility. And then what did they feel when 6 p.m. came and went? What did they feel? What emotions ran through their mind? And undoubtedly, at first it was just sorrow, maybe a little anger, and then just overwhelming feeling like ashamed. Just shame. And I think of camping and all of these different people that followed him, and it was all over the world. I mean, this, this was carried out not just in the United States, but all over the world. Even people were tweeting from New Zealand, 6.05 p.m., nothing's happening here. And it became a running joke all over. I mean, it became the fodder for stand-up comics and uh, you know, late-night TV shows and just running jokes. And people are then starting to make fun of the rapture and the second coming of Christ. Now, while I disagree with Camping's methodology, I disagree greatly with how he interpreted the Scripture and how he deceived so many people, one thing that he did get right is the understanding of imminence, that Christ is going to come, and we are to be ready for the second coming of Christ. But there, the Scripture is also very clear. No man knows the day or the hour. Not even the, the angels in heaven, not even the Son. It's been reserved for the Father God. But I, you know, I think of how he had this epic failure. Now, what, what does he do after an epic failure? And, and each one of us, we may not have a failure along the lines of what camping did, but each one of us knows what it's like to fail greatly. We know what it's like, and I'm assuming, and I, I'm going to say for everyone in this room, what it's like to stand firm and boldly for Christ and say, I'm not going to do that sin anymore. Satan, I'm not going to let you have a victory. And then to turn, sometimes minutes could be hours, maybe days later, and to sin and go against the very thing that you said you'd never do. And what do you feel then? We've all been there. Shame, sorrow, just the pain, the hurt. Now, I think of, of someone, I mean, like camping, his failure occurred for all of the world to see. And undoubtedly, though, it'll be forgotten in a few generations. It'll be a footnote within the textbooks of history if the Lord does tarry. But there was another individual some 2,000 years ago that had an epic failure that his failure has reverberated throughout history coming to us in our time today. That he said one thing, that he would make a bold prediction of his life, and then the opposite happened. And we are all, well, too familiar. It's the story of Peter. I mean, here Peter, at the Last Supper of Jesus, with Jesus, Jesus says that everybody's going to flee from him, that he's going to desert him, in just a little while. And, he, and, and Peter, bold, type A personality, loud mouth Peter, stands up and he goes, no, no, no. If everybody else deserts you, denies you, I'm not going to deny you. 
You know, I'm not going to desert you. I'm not going to desert you. Matter of fact, he says, I, I will die with you. I mean, he is bold. But then Jesus says, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. We know the story. Jesus went out on the Mount of Olives that night, prayed. He was in great agony and grief. When a Roman group of Roman soldiers showed up, he was arrested. He was betrayed by one of his closest companions, Judas. And then he was taken, and we understand that he goes through the trials. He's taken to the, the, the priest, uh, the house of the high priest, uh, Caiaphas. And Peter follows along behind. He enters into the courtyard, and if you remember the story, he does deny the Lord three times in the face of a little servant girl. I mean, here's the man said, I'm going to die for the Lord. I, I'll, I'll stand true. I mean, you picture this guy defiantly taking on armies, and yet here's this small servant girl that says, surely you were with him. He says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. He distanced himself a little further. And he says, no, 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 your accent gives you away. He was from the region of Galilee, probably a little bit like our south, where an accent that was very, uh, you know, it was very noticeable for that region. And he says, no, I don't even know the man. And he brings down even curses on himself. And he does it a third time. And at the third time, he hears the rooster crow. And the gospel reveals at that moment in time that, G that Peter looked up and Jesus was staring right him in the eye. Can you imagine the guilt and the sorrow and the shame that he felt? Here, he had just looked Jesus in the eye earlier, I'm assuming, in his bold assertion that even though everybody else will desert you, I'm not going to deny you. Matter of fact, I will die with you. And it says that his response was he went outside and, as the text says, he wept bitterly. Matthew and Luke recorded that he wept bitterly. So he, he's just amazed at his own ability to turn so quickly from the, from the Lord. And then to see and witness the crucifixion, to experience the, the doubt, the despair, the devastation in his life. And then to hear the news from Mary Magdalene on that first day of the week that Jesus had risen. And he runs to the tomb and he runs in and he, he looks and holds the linens and he's trying to understand what had happened. We know that he was, he was there in the upper room when Jesus had appeared to them and, and he had showed him his hands and his side. He had been there for that. He had seen that. He had been a part of, of the, the Jesus breathing out the Spirit upon them. But yet, I still feel like there was a, and I think this text will show us, there is this remnant of shame that lingers in him. That he felt it, that he carried it with him. And this is the, the last interaction that Jesus has, and it's with Peter, beloved Peter. And, I'd, and it's to that, uh, our attention that I'd like us to look today as we go through this text and we see Jesus' inter interaction with this guy who just had an epic failure and what Jesus does in his life and says to him in the midst of this epic failure that ends up transforming him to be this Hall of Famer, to be this game changer. So let's look at our text. Hopefully you have a Bible. If you don't, please just listen in. We are in John chapter 21. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It is our tradition here to stand at Village Bible Church, so I'd ask you to stand as we read the Word of God together. I'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 23, just cutting it off right near the end. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, 
Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other other disciples came in, in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend to my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After this, saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the, disciple, among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence asking you, to open wide our hearts. We, all, we have all known failure. We've all known epic, large failure in our lives. We know what it's like to live with shame. There are some in this room right now that are carrying great burdens of shame, that are just clinging to their souls. Lord, I pray that you lift that burden from them today. Lord, show each one of us how we can be restored after an epic failure. Lord, you desire our restoration, not our condemnation. 
And we ask you to be in our service in a very powerful, real, and tangible way today. Draw us unto yourself that we all might see you high and lifted up. And if there's anyone here today that does not yet know you and has not yet trusted in you, Lord, I pray that you prick their heart by the truth of your word, by the sword of your word, that they might truly see who you are and embrace you for their salvation. We ask your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, we just talked uh, for a, br a brief while ago of Peter's denial, his desperation and his dev devastation. And that leads us to this passage today. We saw his, this humiliating moment in his life, this humiliation, this where he could have just been condemned for denying the Lord, which is considered to be one of the worst offenses a Christian can do. Matter of fact, in the early church, there was a division that was going on for Christians who, who had denied the Lord in the face of persecution and those who were a part of the church at that time. These individuals, even bishops who were leaders of the church, they were pastors, had denied the Lord and they wanted to come right back into fellowship. And the church said, no, you have denied the Lord. You are done. And these people, though, were truly repentant. So they had to find an entire other churches for these individuals, these men and women, who were carrying around the guilt and shame for denying the Lord. Because what did Jesus say about denying him? He who de denies me. Do you remember that verse? He who denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. I mean, that's, those are pretty bold words. And here Peter is denying Jesus before men. And what do we do with that? What do we do when we have denied Him by our words, by our actions, by our deeds, sometimes even literally denied Him? We've denied Him to our coworkers at times. We've denied Him to our friends and our family. We've tried to keep it a secret. We, when people ask us, we, tell, we, we say, we don't know Him. I don't know what you're talking about. But the reality is, is while some of us or many of us in this room have probably not denied Him verbally like that, we have denied Him by our sins. We have denied His Lordship over our lives. We have continually lived the way that we wanted to while giving credence with our words. So we've all experienced this epic failure. We've all had our share of epic fails. And through Peter, though, is he, he is an example for us that we can see through him that epic failure often results in great shame. That's the first point I'd like you to take home, to write that down, to take it with you, that our failures often result in epic shame. Just there's great shame. And the greater the sin, the greater the shame, especially when it's in the public eye. Or we, we have made bold statements about our faith. I mean, many of us have. And we've encountered, I mean, we, we have been bold for the Lord and then we've denied the Lord. And those, of course, who have been unbelievers notice that and they, they throw that up before the world. I mean, think about all of the words that are being spoken, all of the things that are going around in Twitter and in Facebook and just a different blog, the blogosphere, or on the news, and it's all mocking Harold Camping. I mean, because this guy had an epic failure. And I'm sure every comment, every verbal jab, every tweet, every status update of where he is named just further increases the shame that he feels. Now again, many of us, we're not like Harold Camping in that we didn't make our failure in front of millions of people, but we know what it's like to have shame. And we know what shame does. First of all, shame is painful. It's painful. Anybody who has messed up, and, you, and, and I'm assuming almost everyone in this room has, you have done something that you are not proud of, you have sinned in such a way that you got caught, and you just felt pain. 
You felt pain and shock. Have you ever, have you ever been driving uh, down the, the road and you know you're speeding and then you see the lights in your rearview mirror? What is the first reaction that you have? I mean, your heart starts beating and, and you just feel this uh, all over and you're like, I was caught. And then your reaction is, is I wasn't speeding. And then you look down and you're like, okay, I was. I'm busted. You feel this pain, it's guilt, it's shame, it's all these things at one time that we feel. And that's how we are, though, when we, when we sin. I mean, imagine that we get caught by God and we're exposed in front of all the world for what we had done. I mean, magnify that feeling in that police car or uh, when you see those, those lights in your rearview mirror by a million. And that's what it would be like. And Peter felt pain. I mean, as we, as we had mentioned before, he went outside, as Matthew and Luke both record, and wept bitterly. It, it just was painful to him to know that he had betrayed his Lord. I mean, he loved Jesus. I mean, this was, this was Peter. Peter was part of Jesus' inner circle. Remember, Jesus had the twelve, and then from that he had the three. And Peter was part of that three. Peter got to witness things that a lot of some of the other disciples didn't get to witness. He got to be on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' garments had become glaring and bright white, that no, such a white that no bleach in the world could make it that way. I mean, he got to, to be with Jesus and see different people raised from the dead. I mean, this is Peter that saw Jesus walking on water. And he said, if it is you, Jesus, tell me to come to you and I can walk on water too. I mean, walk on water is a heavy thing. I mean, can you imagine that? The other disciples didn't get to walk on water. And he had started to sink, and Jesus had reached down and saved him. I mean, this is Peter. This is bold, brash Peter. I mean, Peter's got enough guts to rebuke Jesus. I don't know if you remember that or not, but Jesus had told and foretold about his suffering that was going to happen within Jerusalem. And he said suffering and death awaited him, and Peter pulled him aside and goes, no, 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 Lord, this shall never happen to you. And that's when Jesus gives out very... Harsh response. Get thee behind me, Satan. For you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Because man doesn't want to suffer, but that's how God ordained it to be. So we have this Peter that is here. Peter is experiencing extreme pain. The shame is overwhelming him. Now what is shame? Let me pause here for a moment to get a good definition of shame. Shame is the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of something dishonorable, improper, ridiculous that is done by oneself or another. And I think he clearly qualifies for feeling shame, experiencing this pain that came from it. And shame is not only painful, but it leads to a loss of two different things that I'd like to draw your attention to. Power. Power. Peter's bold, but I think his boldness has been brought down a notch. He's not, he's not as sure as he was before. I mean, you can even see that in the question and answer that happens between him and Jesus. He's grieved because Jesus is asking him these questions because it's a reminder to him that he had denied the Lord, that his loyalty was brought into question. It was a loss of power. And many of us know that we've been bold witnesses for Christ. We've been testifying boldly. And then when we sin, we don't, we're not so bold. We back away. We know that we have feet of clay. We're not as iron as we thought we were. So we experience a loss of power, but we also experience a loss of position. See, Peter was the leader, but his denial of the Lord in some ways made him, I mean, it made him unworthy to lead. Remember what we just talked about? 
that if you were to deny the Lord before men, he will deny before the angels in heaven? How can he possibly lead this group of individuals now after he denied the Lord? I mean, how can he do that? How can it, how, what kind of credibility can he have? We all know what that's like to say one thing and then to get caught in a sin that we know that we've struggled with. And then people say, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be one. How can I possibly listen to you? Think about camping now. Who is going to listen to this guy? I mean, you could even throw other people that have made big, bold assertions in the pulpit, and God helped us who are pastors that are, are held to a higher standard that we all live according to that truth. Because you have individuals such as Jimmy Swagger, Ted Haggard. These are individuals that made bold assertions and then their lives totally contradicted their li- their lives totally contradicted their actions. Do you think that they didn't lose power and position? They did. They did. The shame that they felt, Peter felt, and I know that we feel, is horrendous. So what do you do though after an epic failure? What do most of us do? What would you do after you had a failure like that? I mean, there was a failure, failure in front of everybody. What, what do you do? Where do you go from there? I mean, where do you return? Probably, I would assume that most of us return with what we know, with what's familiar. We might go home. I think of Al Gore after he lost the election in 2000, and he was giving his concession speech, and he said, I'm returning home to Tennessee to mend some fences, both literally and figuratively. He was going home. After everything that had happened, after everything in the public eye, he lost the election, he went home to kind of recoup to just get strengthened again. Many of us have returned home after we've had a major failure in our lives. And that's what Peter does. He goes home and he returns to what he knows. He's a fisherman. Seven of the disciples, Peter included, were fishermen. And they said, you know what? We're going to go with you. So Peter says, we're going to go fishing. And they go out and they fish. He returns to his old way of life. I mean, he had encountered the risen Christ, but yet there still isn't this fully orbed change in his life yet. He returns to Galilee, returns to what he knows, and they go fishing. But we also, after reading the text, we know that they go fishing and they caught absolutely nothing. It was futile. Fishing was done at night when the fish fed. So it would have been very early in the morning when they were coming ashore. And let's look at verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. Just as day was breaking, it's early morning, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, this isn't in the text, but you just want to know, what did the disciples think when someone on shore is telling them to cast the nets out? I mean, by the way, have you tried this? (laughs) I'm sure they were like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) But they did it. They did it. They catered to him, whatever the cast may be, it doesn't say, it just says that they did it. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now this happened one time before, in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus had told the disciples to cast over the, 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 their net to catch fish, and they came this overwhelming quantity so much that the nets were even starting to break. So I'm sure, flashback, and they're thinking, whoa, and John goes, John, the, the youngest of the disciples, the, the author of our text, looks at Peter, they were close, those two, and he goes, hey, it's the Lord! <laughs> Peter, 
He's already been undressed for uh, working. It was common for them to work in loincloths. So he puts on his outer garment and he tucks it in to make sure that he can, can swim. And he just jumps right in. He doesn't wait for the boat to go back to shore. This is Peter. He's seeing Jesus. He wants to be in the presence of Jesus. And he swims to shore. He sits down and he sees Jesus, it says in verse 8, that the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not uh, far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So John realized it was at Jesus, informed Peter, and Peter jumped right in. And then when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire. It's very important, that term. There's only one other term that is used, that terminology is used in the Gospels. Actually, within John. And it was used three chapters earlier. It was used on the very night that Peter denied the Lord. That same charcoal fire is the same fire that Peter was standing in front of when he denied the Lord. So it's interesting that there's a charcoal fire in the denial, and here's a charcoal fire here. So what, what is happening, and it's, it's a recreation, most scholars agree with this, that it's, Jesus is recreating, not perfectly, but recreating the situation of where Peter had denied the Lord, but now it's for his restoration. So we see Peter denied the Lord three times. Now Jesus is going to question his love three times. So he's recreating the soul situation. Why? Because he doesn't want our condemnation. He wants our restoration. And that's what's going on here. He is speaking into Peter's restoration. Now, it says in our text, in verse 9, they got on land, they saw the charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. So there was already fish there. One wonders where Jesus got the fish. I mean, you just have to ask ourselves that. Did he, how did it get there? It, but he says to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And there, some scholars have even read into this saying that we have the divine portion and Jesus doesn't need it, but he chooses to use what we bring to the table. It's a good picture there. So God could save people apart from us, but He chooses to use us in what we bring to the table for His glory. Verse 11, So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, fish 153 of them. Now let me pause here for a moment. Why 153? Scholars are all over the place. Those within church history, there's been all types of conjecture on this. I mean, some people have seen it as the number of commandments. Some have seen it as, as different disciples. Some have even seen the Trinity referenced within this passage. It's best that we don't... That scripture doesn't tell us what it means, and it's best not to conjecture on what it exactly means. It's simply a figure that John gives to us. John sometimes gives us figures and pictures that just help understand what was really going on, that we get a fully orbed picture of the scene that's happening before him. So 153 of them, and although there were so many that that was not torn, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like to have breakfast with Jesus. Can you imagine that? Have breakfast with Jesus? What would that be like, to eat the food that he cooked? I'm sure it was amazing. I mean, it probably wasn't anything better than that. I don't even like fish, and I'd probably like that. But he has breakfast for them. He feeds them. And I'm sure this picture would have been a good reminder for them as they're making disciples of all nations. And they're wondering, where does my provision come from? It comes from God. God provides 
for them, not only spiritually, but physically. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord, because I'm sure that he, he still, I mean, he bore the marks of their redemption still. Jesus came, verse 13, and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now let's continue on. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, this is where we get to the crux of the text, the highlight, the the apex of the story. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, Jesus asked Peter if he had more love for Jesus than he had for these things. That's what it literally means in Greek. Now, what did Jesus have in mind? There are three different possibilities that people have given through the years. First, did Peter love him more than the other men present? Do you love me more than these guys do, in essence? Or, did Peter love Jesus more than the fishing boats and nets that Peter had returned to? That seems a little strange to us, but he's basically saying, do you love me more than your profession, even your way of life? Do you love me more than this? That's an option. Or the third option is, is, or did Jesus love, or did Peter love Jesus more than he loved the other disciples? You love me more than you love these guys. We don't know for sure. The comparison seems more likely to have been with the love of the other disciples for Jesus since Peter had earlier professed complete devotion to Jesus in the upper room. Peter had claimed that his love for and commitment to Jesus were so strong, as we said before, that even if all the other disciples forsook him, he would not. But still, Peter had denied that he was one of Jesus' disciples. And that he even knew, he denied even knowing Jesus three times. So Jesus' question was reasonable. He wanted Peter to think just how strong his love for Jesus really was. Now, as we examine, let's examine this interchange. It's one of the most interesting interchanges that we have on all of Scripture. We have three times Jesus questioning Peter, and three times Peter answering, and then Jesus giving uh, a response for Peter, something for him to do. And scholars have made most of this. In, we don't catch it in English. In English, it simply says, do you love me more than these? But remember, the New Testament was written in Greek, and even then, Jesus and his disciples' native tongue was Aramaic. So John is recording a conversation. He's transliterating it into Greek. We're interpreting it into English. Now, in English, it just says, do you love me? But there are different verbs that Greeks used to understand the word love. We have the word uh, eros, which is the erotic form of love between a husband and a wife. Then we have phileo, uh, brotherly love. We get the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's at the root of that. We have the, the word agape, which is God's unconditional love for us. And then we have uh, the last love, which is uh, storge, which is the love of a mother for a child or a child for a parent. Just like when you, I don't know if you ever did this when you were a kid. I did. I'd ask my mother, do you love me more than daddy? And she said, it's different. And my kids ask that all the time. Do you love me more than mommy? It's different. Do you love me more than Jesus? No. Um, Do you love me more than my sister? I said, I love you all the same, but I love mommy differently than I love you. It's a different type of love. And now the Greeks captured that linguistically. Now what Jesus asked, he says, Peter, do you agapao me? Do you love me unconditionally this way? And Peter responds in a different form of love. He says, Lord, you know I phileo you. And then he comes back again. Peter, do you agapao me? And he says, Lord, you know I phileo you. 
And then a third time, Jesus says, but he changes it this time. He goes, Peter, do you phileo me? He goes, Lord, you know all things. You know I phileo you. Now, scholars have been all over the place trying to ascertain the exact meaning and why he uses different terms. And it's true that the word sometimes for love, especially in John's gospel, can be used as synonyms for one another. But that doesn't convey why, if he was coming from Aramaic, which doesn't have such distinctions, why would John then put that in Greek to distinguish between them? Now, one theory, and, and I, no one can say exhaustively or entirely authoritatively why, what happened, and what exactly the meaning is. But some say, Jesus says, do you agapo or agapao me, that you have this higher love for me? Do you have this higher love? And Peter is realizing, you know what? I was so bold before, but I realize now that my love is not as strong as I thought it was. I phileo you, Lord. I do love you. I want it to grow, but I'm not there. He says, you agapao me. Do you have that love? He goes, Lord, you know I love you, but I don't have that level yet. And Jesus says, do you phileo me? comes down to his level. And he says, do you have that love for me? He goes, you know all things. And undoubtedly, when he said, you know all things, he knew all too well because Jesus had told him of his own denial of the Lord. And he denied it. But now, there's a soberness to him where he says, no, you know all things. You know I love you. Now, it's, it's an amazing interchange, and, and again, we can't see too much into it. it, it it's probably better that we look just at, at the sheer amount, the three, rather than it just being once. It's three times, because it's three meant to counteract three denials that Peter has. So what Jesus is doing here is he is tangibly illustrating through his conversation Peter's restoration. In other words, he is issuing forgiveness. Now, the word is not there, but the principle and the practice sure is. See, he's erasing Peter's shame right now. He's giving him a divine do-over. It's a system restore. It's a history deleted. The files are gone. And he's giving him a whole new clean template. It's all gone. It's, it's, it's new, brand new. So these, this forgiveness that Peter has comes through the words of the risen Savior. See, you know, just as well as I do, what it means to sin against God. We all need forgiveness. But you know, and we carry around this shame, this guilt with us. And the only way that we can get rid of it is through the words of the risen Savior. When Jesus said, you are forgiven, He's the only one that has that right to do so. More than anyone else. I, I love it how C.S. Lewis captures it in Mere Christianity. Before even Christ's death and resurrection, he says, Jesus does some very puzzling things that makes one wonder. He says, I forgive you. He goes, it's quite, it's quite something that if you were to wrong me and I say, you were to steal $5 from me, and I look at you and I say, I forgive you. It's quite another thing if you were to steal $5 from me and he says, I forgive you. That's quite different. He said, no one could, could claim that unless he were God. So Jesus, though, is, us, is, is speaking these words of forgiveness, of restoration into Peter's life. He is the only one that can forgive sin. You know what? You can go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and they can make you feel better about yourselves, but they can't forgive sin. See, some of the problems that we do have, they're spiritual problems, and they have physical repercussions. 
We've talked about this in the past. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about those who have taken a communion of an unworthy manner, have invited, uh, they invited sickness into their life. So a spiritual problem with a physical uh, manifestation. And see, though many of us, though, are carrying around these burdens and we try to go to psychology, we, cut, we try to go to all of these different things, but what we need more than anything else is Jesus' forgiveness. We can't erase our shame until we come to the cross. See, that's what we, we hold on to our shame. We let it affect us. We carry this guilt around, but it can't be removed. You can't get rid of that backpack of sin and shame unless you take it to the cross. That's where God said, I can take your burden away, that I'm taking your sin upon myself. And then I'm erasing shame. Then you're no longer bound to your sin, self, and shame. And Satan no longer has that dominion over you. That I'm bringing you and I'm making you a child of light. I'm giving you a purpose. I'm giving you a direction. And I'm setting you on a whole new course and path of life. So it's only through the cross that our shame is truly taken away from us. And the risen Savior shows that sin was defeated. His, his very hands and feet inside bore the truth of that reality. So forgiveness for Peter comes through the words of the risen Savior. Jesus is the one who initiated this entire process. There are three little points that I just want to highlight for you very briefly what he did for Peter. First of all, Jesus is the one who found him. He was the one who found him. He was the one on shore. He went to Peter, we can't save ourselves after an epic fail. Jesus is the one who has to come to us. We do have to go to Him, yes, but He already indicated that we can come to Him. In essence, He came in the incarnation and Calvary to us to bring about our salvation. We could never go to Him if He first didn't come to us. Remember, we were the one sheep of the hundred that the shepherd leaves behind to go and rescue. We were the lost coin that the woman tears apart the house to find. We're the prodigal that the father is running to as he's making his way home, that he was seeking him and looking for him. Jesus is the one who found him. He found him. What else did Jesus do? He fed him. He fed him. He was the one that made the breakfast and cooked the food. He was the one that had the fish that there and invited them to bring their fish a part of it. And undoubtedly, that reality would have played out in their minds after He ascends into heaven and they are going, to, going forth throughout the nations proclaiming the truth of Jesus' kingdom, the reality of His resurrection. And as they were being persecuted in different places, as, they, as even Paul says, experiencing hunger to know that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No man lives by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Being sustained, not only physically, I mean spiritually, but also physically. That He was there sustaining them and would feed them. And notice, after He found them and fed them, it was only then that, Jesus, that it was then that Jesus freed Him. He offers words of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, Jesus wanted to do more than just free Him. I mean, many of us want to be freed from sin, but then... It's not just freedom. He gives you then a purpose. He takes you and uses them for himself. You don't just give to Jesus and take back. That's not what we're supposed to do. I did this once with a youth ministry. I said, how many? I had a $10 bill and I held up. And I said, how many want this $10 bill? And all the kids are raising their hand. And I said, take it. And I held on to it. And I pulled it back. And it ripped in half. I said, you know, that's what many of us do. We offer to Jesus our lives and we want to pull it back. We can't do that. We give it to him freely. We give it to him entirely. 
So Jesus frees us, but then He takes us and uses us for His glory. He has a purpose for our lives. He wanted, to move, he, he wanted to make Him into a vessel to display God's glory through Him. As Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him that we should walk in Him. God desires to show and display His works in us. We've talked about this passage in the past. The word there for workmanship is God's poema. From where we get our word poem. It's understanding that through our lives, people can read the presence of Christ in us. It's a really great picture. We are canvases that display the artist's hand within our lives. We are artworks for Him. So we see that He is establishing Him. He's giving Him a future of service. And he gives, that's what He does for us. After He saves you, He wants to use you for His glory. He's got a service that He wants you to be doing. And overall, that's to be making disciples. But then He has divinely gifted and purposed you with all of your background, all of your experiences, all of your spiritual gift and natural talents to use you for His glory. Do you know what those are? We have a wonderful resource that's available on villagebible.org called the Place Test. I don't know how many of you have taken that. I would encourage you to go there. If you can't get to the web, let us know about it. We'll try to give you the test so you can just do it. But it's about an hour to two hour test, which you take online and it goes through and it shows you as you answer these questions, how God has divinely gifted you with your personality type, with your background, with your experiences, and the spiritual gifts that you've been given. And every single person who has come to know Jesus Christ receives a spiritual gift at the moment of their salvation, which is a divinely given gift, a supernatural gift that is given to you that God wants to use through you for service. Now, for me, my spiritual gift is teaching. Teaching. Now, sometimes there are natural talents. People have natural talents or speaking abilities, but then there's a divine drive that God places within us. I, for me, even if I wasn't a pastor, I'd have to teach. It's, a, it's something that God has given me to do. It's my spiritual gift. What's yours? And there are many different ones. I would encourage you to go online, villagebible.org slash place. I think that's how the, the, the backslash place. Take the test. It will report back to us. We'll even run it through with you. So we can put you and place you in the ministry that God has already gifted you to do. Try to find a match for your giftedness to be serving. Because see, God desires us to be serving. What did he desire for Peter? He desired him to serve. Look at that interchange again. Simon, uh, when he says to him, yes, Lord, in verse 15, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And then at the third interchange, He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And again, we have a difference in wording here. Feed, bosco, my lambs, arnion, ten, poem. These different Greek words that are here. I'm not going to go through all the details with that. And scholars are, again, divided on what that means. What is he trying to emphasize here? And I'd like us to just look at the grand overall point. Basically is, is care for my people. That's it. Love them. Shepherd them. Be my under-shepherd, care for my lambs, my flock, my, my followers, love them, serve them. I have a service that I want you to do. I have saved you for a reason. I have divinely put you through all these experiences now, or let you go through them so I can use those experiences to speak to other people. And I guarantee that Peter could speak to other people that had royally messed up, that had epic failures. I mean, what epic failures have you had in your life? I'm sure many of you are too ashamed to even say it. 
I think of one woman who has had an epic failure. I don't know if you've ever heard of the ministry of a woman by the name of Sandy Fatal. I heard Sandy Fatal. I was ministering at Cook County Jail in the, late, uh, in the mid to late 90s when I encountered her. It was uh, Bill Glass Ministries was there, and she gets up, and she proceeds to give her testimony, and it was a very powerful testimony. She'd come, in, come of age in the 60s and the 70s. She became a groupie for Jimi Hendrix. She was in the whole drug scene, just the party scene in the 60s and the 70s. I mean, but she was severely messed up. She not only got addicted to, she was smoking pot all the time. She started doing heroin. She said, if I could shoot it, snort it, uh, I, I could do any, eat it, I would do it. And she ended up in her going back and forth with all these different men. One of them ended up being on the FBI's most wanted list and was um, executed on the electric chair. Another guy, uh, one of her boy, but she calls one of my old men, uh, was sentenced to life in prison. She goes, by the age of, and, and by the age of 21, she had become a prostitute. This is all before the age of 21. I mean, it's amazing. She'd also had, uh, had an abortion and given up one child for adoption. I mean, this woman had been through everything. She'd been through everything. And then after all of that, she'd met a woman, I think it was like in her rehab or halfway house, that knew Christ and shared Christ with her. And there was a transformation that occurred in her life. And she became not only a believer in Christ, she ended up meeting a man and marrying him, and she became a pastor's wife. And she stands up, and she gives her testimony. And I was maybe 19 or 20, and I'm sitting there, and I'd never been in a jail before. And suddenly I'm surrounded by armed guards and German shepherds and all these Department of Corrections shirts on out in the middle of the yard with 200-some inmates. There's like 40 of us. And she gives her testimony, and she goes, if you want to know Christ, stand up. And she directed them our way to the counselors. And the guy, I was a rookie, so I was associated with this guy who'd been in prison himself. And he was ministering. And next thing I know, I see him surrounded by four guys, and he's sharing Christ with them. And I was relieved because I didn't know what I was going to say. I, had, I didn't have any experience I could relate with to these guys. And I was, whew, I said, wow, I'm, I'm kind of glad I don't have to say anything right now. And she says, if you want to rededicate your life, stand up. <laughs> the whole yard stands up. Because the power of her testimony, she goes, go to those guys, and there were three of us. Next thing I know, I'm surrounded by 40 different inmates, having no idea what I'm saying, but my prayer life took on a whole new meaning right then and there. I'll tell you that. This snot-nosed college kid trying to speak the truth of Christ to them, but it was the power of her testimony that it helped change and transform, that God had used the power of her testimony to transform their lives. Are you testifying to the reality of what God has done in your life? You may not know how it's going to affect somebody else. And as we've talked before, some of you have light switch testimonies where it was completely dark and then it became completely light. You were in horrid sin and then it just went to light. Some of you, though, were raised in godly Christian families. You don't have that. And praise God that you don't have that. But the light is still on in your life. It was still dark at a period of time. It might have been the dimmer switch that it came on gradually. But God can still use that testimony to testify to the reality of the legacy that you were a part of that gives other people hope to raise their children in a godly manner. So don't beat yourself up for not having the testimony that some people have. The fact is that you were still dead and you became alive. That's the important thing. Whether it's a little infant that's in the coffin or a 97-year-old man, if you're dead and then you're alive, that's a miracle. That doesn't matter then. But Jesus gives us a future of service. Now, Peter's future service is a picture of our own service and what it entails. His future service and ours, to a lesser extent, involves great surrender. Surrender. Let's look at verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now, 
growing up and reading this verse, or in my early Christian walk, I, I had no idea what was meaning this, I mean, meant by this, especially in verse 19, where he said, this is meant to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. I had no clue what this passage meant. And it didn't help that my mother and my grandfather both worked in nursing homes. So when he said, you're too old, and to stretch out yourself, I could only picture people in wheelchairs for the longest time. But that's not the imagery that's being conveyed here by John. John is understanding here that, or communicating here when he says, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. It's a metaphor, a picture that Peter will die, that he's going to be crucified. The stretching out of the arms is a picture of crucifixion that Peter is going to die in the same manner that his Lord will, and he's going to be led where he doesn't want to go. Someone else is going to dress him and take him to this place, and he's going to die this way. And church history has proven that out. Church history uh, tradition dictates that Peter did die by crucifixion in Rome. He actually died after watching his wife crucified in front of his face. He said uh, he was going to be crucified. He said, I'm not worthy to die in the manner of my Lord, that he was crucified upside down. It's a very horrible horrendous picture, but he understood he just wasn't worthy. And that's what he felt. See, it involves surrender to his own desires, surrender of his life entirely. And that's what God wants from us. You can't just be in the world and be a Christian. You can't have it both ways. You either love God or you love the world. The Bible doesn't have any difference in between. It's either white or black. And I see so many different people today, so many Christians that just say, I'm a Christian, and their life totally contradicts everything about them. I mean, I, in their language, in their pursuits, in their position, they're clamoring for different things. The world and God are in opposition to one another. Light and darkness. You can't intermix the two. When God calls you to surrender, He offers you to surrender everything, to give up everything that you have, to get everything that God is. You can't have everything that God is if you're holding on to what you have. You give it up. See, he's not calling just Peter to surrender, but to amazing sacrifice, that he's going to die. See, Romans even talks about this. We're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, that God is to do whatever he wants to do with our lives. I'm reading right now a great book. I would really encourage you to read it uh, by Eric Metaxas entitled Bonhoeffer. It's a huge book. It's a New York Times bestseller of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred in World War II. He was a German man uh, that ended up uh, speaking out against Hitler. He became a leader of what was known as the Confessing Church in opposition to the German church. The German church had uh, capitulated and given themselves over to the Fuhrer. Fuhrer just, they were dedicating their babies in the name of Hitler. I mean, the liturgies were changed. They would baptize their babies in the name of Hitler. And these leaders were duped at the beginning because Hitler had given a sermon how Jesus was the greatest Aryan hero. But in closed doors, all of the leaders that were with him despised Christianity because it was weakness to them. Mercy and grace were complete antithetical to what they esteemed to be perfect of the German Aryan man, which was to be fearless and bold and the strength and power. And they set themselves in opposition to the church and decided to infiltrate the church and turn it into almost a church for Hitler. And Hitler and Bonhoeffer spoke out against it and became the leader of the confessing church in Germany during that period of time. He was a brilliant man, brilliant scholar, but his life ended up representing his words. He wrote a book called 
uh, in English, it's the cost of discipleship. And the most famous line in that book, and I've shared this many times before, is when Jesus bids a man, he bids him come and die. He calls us to die. Not just figuratively to the things of this world or metaphorically, but sometimes literally to give our lives. To show even through our martyrdom, through love, because you can offer up your body to the flames and have not love, and that means nothing. But it's through love of God we offer ourselves in an act of love that we show that God is more worth to us than life itself. Because the blood of the martyrs, as it's been said, is the seed of the church. So Peter, God, Jesus is laying out for Peter, you're going to die in service for me, Peter. You're going to die. And just like Bonhoeffer, he ended up dying. He spoke out against Hitler. Uh, he ended up in, becoming a part of a plot to remove Hitler. He was found out. He was captured. He was sent to prison. And all of the different prisoners that interacted with him couldn't believe the peace that he had. He ministered even in that state. He knew his death was coming to these different prisoners. And even right before he died, the doctor that witnessed it, he said, I've never seen a man more at peace to ready to go off to death. And he went out to the hangman's noose, and he, he was hanged, executed. I mean, he was stripped naked. And he gave his life. And he, he knew, though, and he talked about it years before, that Jesus, he says, when Jesus calls a person, he calls him to die. And he accepted that truth. And it's, I believe, a dramatic illustration of Hebrews where it says, love their lives not unto death. They lived lives of which the world was not worthy. That's what Bonhoeffer did. That's what Peter did. That's what most of the disciples did, if not all of them. They gave their lives in a life of service. They surrendered themselves. They offered great sacrifice. And then they also were very, they possessed a great selflessness. It's my one of my last points. And I, I look at that, and I'd like us to look at verse uh, 20, the selflessness that we are to exhibit in our pursuit of Christ. In verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Now, undoubtedly, there was, some, there was always a little bit of animosity between some of the apostles. I mean, they were human individuals, and I'm sure some of the conversations that they had would have been just absolutely overwhelming and, and sometimes quite funny, but they, they argued among themselves who would be first, who, would be, who was the best, who would have the right, hand, the, seat of, the right hand of Jesus, who would be able to drink of his cup, which one was the greatest, and Jesus is constantly having to remind them, that's not what it's about. Become a servant of all. That's what I want from you. And the, John, here in this gospel, he is the author of this text. He's the youngest of them. And he was, uh, out of all of the disciples, Peter's the, the loudest, but John's probably the closest to Jesus. That's why he calls him the disciple whom Jesus loved. So Jesus had the twelve. He had the three, Peter, James, and John. From that, he had John. And I'm sure Peter, though, wanted to be the closest. And I'm sure that Peter, he said, hey, and look at verse uh, 22, or verse 21. What about this man? In essence, that's what I'm going to do. What's this guy going to do? What's this guy going to do? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, I mean, you're going to die, but if, he, if I have it, it's my will that he's going to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't look at everybody else's calling. Don't be jealous of what everyone else is doing. You do the task that God has gifted you to do. If someone else has success and you don't have success, God has something that he's doing within you. You be faithful to the call that he has given you, not someone else. He's not called you to be Billy Graham. He has called you to be you, where you're at, in your situation. Sometimes we say, well, I don't have all these opportunities. I have my children here, or I'm a, I'm a stay-at-home mom, or I work in this place and I interact with people. God's got you there for a reason. 
He wants to use you in your situation. Whether you're raising small children or whether you're taking care of Alzheimer's patients, it doesn't matter. God's got you there for a reason. What is the calling that he has for you? What is that to you? Quit looking at everybody else and you follow me. You follow me. Don't look what everybody else is doing. You follow me. But what about, never mind them. You follow me. You follow me. Selflessness. Give up ourselves. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And then it ends in verse 23. So the saying spread among, uh, abroad among the brothers that this disciples was not to die. John's writing this to counteract this popular belief that he would never die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And John did die. He was the last of the disciples to die uh, in very old age and uh, probably of the only one to die of natural causes. Now, there's one last point that I would like to draw your attention to before I close that I skipped over at the beginning of this. Notice at the beginning of this episode, we had the disciples fishing and catching absolutely nothing. Now, when did they catch fish? It was at Jesus' word. And I think that's an overarching picture here. And that's the, Without Him, we'll be, we would be fruitless in our pursuits of Him in service. I think that overrides the whole episode. The last point that I want us to take home is to remember Jesus is the key to a future of fruitful service. As you do go out into service, as you're doing what God has gifted you to do in your homes, in your workplace, in your schools, wherever life takes you, whether it's the military, wherever it is, God wants to use you, but He will only use you as much as you are connected to Him. As Jesus said in John chapter 15, unless, I, my, unless you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will apart from me you will accomplish nothing, basically. You have to have my words in you. And I have to, you have to be in me because you are connected to me. You are the branch that's connected to the vine. Because apart from me, you have nothing. See, it was only when Jesus was there that the blessing really occurred. And it's only when Jesus is in our lives and walking in fellowship with Him that true blessing occurs. Think about it. When they are, He is feeding the thousands, it's only when the bread went through Him that it was multiplied. It was only when Jesus was there that Peter could walk on water and he kept his focus on Him. It was only when Jesus was in the boat and He said, Peace be still, that the storm was calmed. It's only when Christ is in our lives that we can have fruitful ministry. And if we're walking with Him, we can't just get on by fumes. We have to constantly be filling the tank to be recharged, walking daily with Him. That's why in the, in the, in the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel was wandering in the, in the, the desert or in the wilderness, and they asked God for food, and God sends down the manna, He says, only get enough for the day. Don't get any more than you need. And some of them didn't believe the Lord and held on to the excess. And then the next morning they woke up and they said it had worms and it rotted and it stank. Because God is saying with me, give us our daily bread. It's to be a daily walk. Take up my cross daily. Walk with Him daily. That's the key to a fruitful ministry. It's to be walking in prayer and reading the Word daily. Without Jesus, we have nothing. Without abiding in Him, And His words abiding in us, we can't bear any fruit. He is the only one that can come to us and take our epic failures and make them epic acts of fruitful faithfulness. He's the only one who can give us hope 
and lift us out of our futility by extending the olive branch of forgiveness. He is the key to fruitful service and to transforming epic failures. He transformed Peter. And we could see that transformation in the book of Acts as he stands before thousands to deliver the first sermon in church history that yields a harvest of 3,000 souls. May our lives be like Peter. May he take the epic failure of your life and mine and use it for his glory. May he use each individual here, no matter what your failure has been, no matter if you've lost, you've experienced that pain, you might have lost that power, you might have lost that position, that God can and will use your failure to make fruitful, give you a fruitful ministry as he offers his forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you have not yet received this forgiveness, you have not yet trusted in Christ, the Bible is very clear that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It means repenting of your sin and turning to Him. Taking an entirely new direction, saying, I'm not going to go this way any longer. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to embrace God. I'm going to go in this direction. And I'm going to trust in Him. And I'm going to call out to Him. And once you do that, He will save you. He will forgive you of your sins, transform you, and give you a purpose and whole new direction in life. And even if we have individuals that are here that have messed up, that have sinned, that after we follow the Lord, we still have epic failures, there's still forgiveness. Because again, He doesn't want our condemnation. He wants our restoration. Let's pray. Father and our God, thank You.